Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Brought to you by Penguin. My reality now will be is that anyone who Googles my name ever, you know, it's trans, trans, trans. So like one aspect of my life, which is not the whole of me and certainly not the whole of my creativity or my writing, is something I'm, I'm going to be very well known for. And I think any writer from a minority has that tension. Like, do you want to be, you know, you want to just be a writer. You don't want to be a black writer. You don't want to be a trans. But I, I think, um, yeah, I think ultimately what changed my mind in the end is a feeling that it was just, I mean, frankly, it was that it was too urgent to not do. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. On this show, we invite authors to welcome us into their creative worlds. We want to know about their habits, what drives them and how their initial inspirations manifest themselves onto the page. We also ask each guest to bring with them a selection of items that have shaped them or their writing. And then we probe a little deeper into why they've had such an impact. And today I look forward to finding out how some fresh flowers and an icon of modern music have influenced this week's guest. In the hot seat today is a presenter, journalist, editor, comedian, podcaster and author who is at the forefront of trans liberation in the UK. As a journalist, she has written for everyone from The Guardian to The Independent alongside her current work with Navarra Media, producing videos and discussions around political issues. As a campaigner, she has worked on behalf of Amnesty International and Stonewall. And on the creative side of things, recent projects include the 2017 short film Catechism, which debuted at the Tate an acclaimed podcast, Call Me Mother, in which he interviews trailblazing LGBTQ elders. And on top of all that, and I'm exhausted just reading that (laughs) out, she's just released her first book, which is the reason we're chatting today. The transgender issue is a powerful, superbly written manifesto for change, which calls for justice and solidarity between marginalised peoples and minorities. And I'm delighted to welcome onto the Penguin podcast its author, the brilliant Sean Fay. Hello, Sean. Hi, thank you for having me. I mean, your CV, I was scared, would be longer than this podcast. <laughs> where do you find the time? Um, where do I find the time? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, um, I mean, more recently, I think being a writer, we can talk about it a bit, but in, in the pandemic and in lockdowns, certainly I think everyone found lockdown hard. And I think I threw myself into work because... I was lucky that I could keep working from home, especially in the January one. I mean, that was so bleak. So like, for example, I was, I was writing and doing the podcast in the evening from my home and then, you know, but actually it was a way to fill the time, um, which we all needed something. (laughs) Um, What's the energy that drives you? If I'm being really honest, I think a lot of it was, I got to a certain point in adulthood in my late twenties after I had transitioned and I'd always kind of identified as LGBTQ because I came out as gay when I was younger. And yeah, to be honest, I think I had a lot of pent up energy, anger, resentment about some of the things that I'd, I'd experienced myself when I was young, some of the messages that society had given me that perhaps, you know, didn't equip me for the, to necessarily the healthiest or happiest life when I was younger and yeah, I guess like at first it became this like very zealous, which I think a lot of people, LGBTQ people, for example, do when they come out is they're very zealous and they want to change the world. And a little bit of that is about you and about 
dealing with perhaps your own stuff, your own your own history or your own damage or your own trauma, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I like to think that probably as I've gotten older then, I've had to rethink that and think about how to professionalise it and how to channel the energy in a healthy way and to think about what's a useful useful way to use my time um, and what's not a healthy one. So maybe you can write a book, but maybe don't waste hours on Twitter arguing with people, for example. <laughs> yeah, that's that never ends well, does it? And it never makes you feel particularly satisfied at the end of it. Um, to think of transition in another sense, how long do you think it took you to transition from having anger and resentment and frustration as an energy to thinking about what powers your creativity in a more positive way? I mean, I think that's still an ongoing process. I mean, I think we're talking a week after my book has come out and obviously I'm seeing a lot of reaction to it on on social media, Instagram, lots of people posting about it. And even that, I still get surprised because I think a lot of creative processes is it's, it's actually quite solipsistic. You're on your own, especially with something like a book. I was with that book for two years and no one else really saw it apart from my editor maybe a couple of friends. And um, yeah, sometimes you can underestimate, I think, uh, the reach you can have and the sort of, yeah, the ability that you might have, your creative work might have to move people to change their minds. And that still shocks and surprises me. And I feel it motivates me. Often I ride off the reaction to one thing and use it for the next project. I mean, I'm always kind of a bit of an on to the next thing kind of person, which I'm, I'm trying. And <laughs> my therapist has very much encouraged me to try and savour achievements, which I never do. What were the the things that could have put you off writing this book? Yeah, well, I didn't want to write the book at first, if I'm honest. I I was convinced to, actually, by my agent, Emma Patterson at Aiken Alexander. She kind of offered me representation. I was a bit reluctant. And she just was saying, you know, if you had any ideas for a book, because she'd read my sort of published journalism. We had a coffee and then... I don't know, I sort of ended up on a rant about how poor the state of reporting on trans issues in this in the UK is and about what, well, you know, what should be at the centre of a conversation. And pretty much in that rant, I kind of articulated perhaps the first kind of verbal proposal for what ended up as the book. And she kind of was like, well, that would be. But it still took me some time to think about it. And that's obviously one big reason is I knew that it was going to forever make me known for being trans. And, and as much as I am, I have got to a place in my life where I think I'm, you know, without being too cringe and cliche, I am proud to be trans. There's a difference between that and being kind of, if you like, a private citizen. And what the, my reality now will be is that anyone who Googles my name ever, you know, it's trans, trans, trans. So like one aspect of my life, which is not the whole of me and certainly not the whole of my creativity or my writing, is something I'm, I'm going to be very well known for. And I think any writer from a minority has that tension. Like, do you want to be you know, you want to just be a writer. You don't want to be a black writer. You don't want to be a trans. But I th I think, um, yeah, I think ultimately what changed my mind in the end is a feeling that it was just, I mean, frankly, it was that it was too urgent to not do. And I was already being framed as a trans writer anyway. Like I couldn't escape that because you can't just work in the British media and then you work for publications and you see the next day they run something really awful about community you belong to. They drag you in anyway because I'd already had disputes with editors and publications that I was writing for because not often because of my pieces, but because I didn't feel comfortable working for places where they felt like my life was some kind of debate. And that was a valid thing. It didn't make me feel very respected as a colleague, if you like, or a peer in the media. So I kind of felt like I was already dragged in anyway. Um, and at least with a book, I could set the terms of the conversation. So it was a more empowered 
position to be in. How does that frame your approach going forward in when people are going to have trans debates on TV or on radio? And it's like some researcher or producer goes, oh, you know, Sean Fay wrote the transgender issue, an argument for justice. Let's get her on. Yeah, well, that's already happening. And I'm already, I mean, <laughs> my publicity team and agent and other people, you know, around around this project have, have pointed out how good I am at saying no. I was very inspired by um, Renieto Lodge because when she wrote Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which was a huge success and really a, a sort of cultural phenomenon, she just refused to do any of that kind of... Um, read the book. Yeah, it is. It's like, read my book. I'm not going to just come on and have this banal debate and be, you know, I'm, and then I feel the same way. Like I'm not a trans renter gob. One of my first questions is, will the host of this read the book? And a lot of the time it's no. And so actually they're not having me on to talk about my book or my work or my arguments. They're having me on to talk about what they want to talk about, which is exactly what I'm trying to avoid with the book. And, and so, yeah, it's, but it's nice to be in a position where you can turn things down. It's nice to be listened to because trans people so rarely are. So at least that's a change. But also I think the other thing to say on that is that, you know, I've written a book, I've written my version of an argument, but I am very much, I believe like trans, if you like trans liberation is a movement. Like I, I, I cite the work of a lot of other trans authors. I'm not saying I have all the answers and the media loves a little mascot or a, a token. And I, I have no interest in becoming like the go-to on all things trans. Like, I feel like I could, I'm happy with making one contribution and talking around that, obviously, as people do around their books when they come out. But it doesn't mean that I, I want to be going on Good Morning Britain every time that there's something trans going on. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, why would you wish that upon yourself? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure anyone would. Um, so in that respect, how can you manage your place within a culture war that people want to bring to your doorstep? Is it the same answer? You can just refuse? Or is there an inevitability without being part, just being dragged into it? I think there's a, there's a small inevitability, but I do, think, I, I do think it's actually easier now that I have a text in the world, right? So the text is what I want people to engage with. They don't ha I don't have to engage. Yeah, I mean, the media, I've had some media attacks. I've had, you know, Brendan O'Neill in Spiked magazine wrote a piece that, you know, Open Chomfe is a man who believes he's a woman the other day. And it's like interesting that people who want to attack the book attack me. Um, and I think that says a lot, actually. And so, yeah, on the positive side of that is that I already realise that there's this like whole community of readers, some of whom I'll never meet, never know, who at least my work becomes part of their thinking on this issue. And obviously I'm aware that, you know, there is a bit of a generational gap it really pleases me. I've already, when people say that they're going to give it to like their dad or whatever, because it's perhaps like, you know, via Instagram and stuff like that, the kind of community of readers that I might reach initially younger, but you hope that through osmosis, um, maybe people that would never have picked up a book like that will end up reading it. And that's like a really, that's a really special thing about having something like that in the world, isn't it? Well, you know, I am dad age. <laughs> so um, it's really made me think a lot, this book. Uh, and I wouldn't have considered myself to be the kind of person that would have written an article attacking you to begin with. But if it's made me shift my tile in all my faux liberalness, then uh, that's a good thing. Um, let's go to your first object, which is a hugely iconic film. So the film is The Wizard of Oz, 1939 film starring Judy Garland. It was my favourite film as a child. 
I used to be able to basically mouth the entire, (laughs) the script to the entire film at one point when I was about seven or eight. And so for that reason, it's always been a comforting film as those films from childhood are. Actually, I'm recording from my teenage bedroom in my mum's house because I'm staying with my mum for a few days and above it is a print a friend sent me um, during lockdown and it's actually it's this artist who puts every frame of an entire motion picture on top of each other and then it becomes this like amazing kind of like you know that color print Um, and you wouldn't know I mean it's something I get to explain to people Um, not that I really ever have people in my teenage bedroom but you know and yeah and, and I the reason that it's also interesting to me is because I loved that film as a child and that was just because I liked it. I didn't know anything about this. But of course, like so many things that I think LGBTQ people, when I'll say queer people as as the overall, I think a lot of us experience is that when we grow up, we start to realise that these things that we were attracted to as children are actually very iconic things for queer people generally. And and of course, it was only when I got older that I realised, you know, The Wizard of Oz, Somewhere Over the Rainbow was considered like, you know, for early gay liberation was kind of considered you know, this like anthem about imagining a world where things are better and it, gay men clearly very much identified with it and trans people did as well. It's almost like a, not an argument because it's not obviously innate, but I think it's one of those fascinating things about how queer culture and subcultures work is that, yeah, often we do how we find each other as people when we grow up, because we often, when we start to realise that we're different, we think we're the only one. And then, yeah, you suddenly realise that... um there must be things that have appealed to you from a very, very young age. And and so, yeah, so The Wizard of Oz is like that for me. And I think it represents a lot about like what I love about camp and gay icons, divas, queer culture. And I picked it because it was a nod to the kind of queer culture that I come from as my kind of background, even though I've largely become a very boring heterosexual woman post-transition. Obviously, I don't like I haven't lost that queerness that was in me as a child, as a teenager. Um, so you kind of reverse engineered a meaning to it that, of course, as a seven-year-old, you wouldn't recognise necessarily. Mm. And that's that's really interesting, actually, because, you know, I think about films that mean something to me. They don't have that that depth. Yeah. You know, whereas <laughs> you've just explained something that actually joins you to a community of people. Yeah, and, and what's so fascinating about, like, you know, because I think nowadays there are all these conversations about representation and there are films, obviously, there are more and more films featuring gay people in particular, trans people less so, although there is like one of the biggest teenage shows in the US now is Euphoria. And one of the main characters in it is uh, Hunter Schaefer, who is a young trans woman who transitioned very young and, and she plays a trans character. So there's a whole group of like cis teenagers who are growing up watching like a teen show with a trans girl played by a trans girl as the main character and actually her trans is that she's you know she's just a teenager I mean I'm only 33 but that's very different from the world I grew up in and what I find interesting about things like the Wizard of Oz is Somewhere Over the Rainbow is not was not the person that wrote that song wasn't writing about it being a better world for queer people but there's something about in a culture where you're kind of erased maybe that you find meanings in things in the mainstream even like in gay slang like the term friend of Dorothy used to be like a code for like he's gay so it was that it was that central I mean there's even there's even um I mean whether or not it's true but there's one of the um the Stonewall riots which I discuss in the book which was kind of the uprising at the Stonewall Inn in New York which is, is largely considered and it was started by gay people trans people and lesbians 
one of the origin myths about why that started is it started about the same day that, you know, in the same 24 hours that Judy Garland had died. Perhaps emotions were running high as well because this like huge gay icon had just died in the hours before. Now, whether or not that's true, I couldn't tell you because it sounds to me like it could be something that like people attribute back. I do think it's just, yeah, it's interesting about how much she and that film play this role in queer culture. And so that's why I picked it. And and, and yeah, and, and it played a huge role in my life long before I would have known anything about my own identity or identified as LGBTQ. I hope someone somewhere has done their degree dissertation on the link between the death of Judy Garland and the Stonewall riot. <laughs> I'm sure there is someone. I'm sure <laughs> there is some over, over-eager undergrad who has done that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm keen to read that, genuinely keen to read that, because... Uh, how you'd make 10,000 words out of that, I would love to see. Um, Now, your next object, Sean, is uh, a selection of fresh flowers Mm. that adorn your writing table. Is this a daily thing? No, it's not. It's So the reason that I put this in, I thought it'd be, yeah, it's one, obviously, like everyone likes flowers. That's nice. They're nice to look at. The reason I mention them is because I, um, unsurprisingly, like I think a lot of trans people, have in my life not always been the healthiest person or the happiest person. I used to struggle a lot with very severe depression and basically was not very good at taking care of myself. And there was a lot of reasons for that. But I think some of it was dysphoria before I transitioned, but some of it was, yeah, I just picked up bad habits and perhaps I'd internalized poor messages. And and I discussed that in the book. That's the final sort of like page of the book. I say, you know, I still struggle with liking myself sometimes because unfortunately that's what homophobia, transphobia can do to people. And uh, they do say if you can look after plants or flowers and you can keep them alive, that's maybe a sign <laughs> that you're 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 sort of getting better at the idea. I can just about look after myself, and I'm 33, but I don't know that I could look after even a dog. So, <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so yeah, flat. So we're at flowers. Also, I um, which is connected to a couple of the objects, is I wrote the majority of this book in the first lockdown and. It was a really beautiful spring, but we had this bizarre thing where you couldn't enjoy it. And what an odd time to live through human history. And I think, yeah, I took very much to doing the daily walk and connecting with nature. All those things that we were advised to do in that time was part of that. So that's why I picked the flowers. When you spend so much of your earlier life struggling to be seen and respected, but then you want to make sure you're not purely defined. And I know this is potentially going back to what we talked about before. But how does that work? Because it's like, I want to be seen, but I don't want you to just only see that. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a battle that every trans person has. You know, I, I'll i be very honest that like when I medically transitioned, it was it was very important to me that if, which, you know, largely is my life now, if I walk down the street, people don't don't know I'm a trans person. I mean, <laughs> maybe if I start like talking at length with someone, they might be like, she has a very husky voice. <laughs> but um, but I but that was important to me. And that was about I could only do the public work if my private life was not dominated by it. You know, there was a point early in my transition where I would be shouted at in the street and I would have people throw things at me and I did have people spit at me. And I could not have written this book or done the work I do if that was still happening for me, because that that would have been too great. I can just about handle the public scrutiny of ha- of being a, a writer and a public figure, but I couldn't handle it with the kind of daily harassment that um, a lot of trans people do experience, and I experienced early in the early days. And it's sad that I feel that way, but that is the that's the culture. Like gender nonconformity is heavily punished, 
And as much as I'd love to say I rise above it and I'm proud, you know, you're treated a lot better if you're not seen as a trans person even now. And if you look around at the trans people who are in the media, they tend to be the ones that look more conventional or blend in more. And that's partly because like, yeah, people can be really, really horrible about visibly trans people. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's something that I feel is, you know, if I'm being honest, I think different ways of being seen and the context in which you're seen can have a huge bearing. And yeah, it's something I battle with a lot. And even though I don't want to be framed by being trans, I mean, the reality is, is that I am like, you know, I I don't have to spend long on what, Tinder or Hinge before I have to, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to go on a date with someone, I'm going to have to tell him pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but, you know, like even that, it does touch my daily life. It does touch, you know, it's not a day that goes by where I don't think about it. Looking at various myths in the, that are exposed in the book, I thought one thing that was really interesting was how some people on the other side suggest that the reason that so many people are talking about being transgender is because of the media, that somehow there are more numbers now simply because you guys have made it a thing. <laughs> and it was really fascinating to talk about someone who, is, who transitioned in her 90s and someone who, whose parents you went to see, mm. who first told them, I think, when she was three years old. Yeah, and that, that's a sign. I mean... As I sort of discuss in the book, I like, you know, it's that thing when you have modern terms, like the term trans only came into existence about 100 years ago. Like, you know, transgender is a successor to this old division that used to be their transsexual, transvestite, and now there's the, the bigger label trans. But like the concept only really came about at a certain point in history, just as the concept gay and homosexual only came about at a certain point in history. And just like race was invented at a certain point in history, right? Like the, yes. Yeah. Like whiteness only came into being at a certain point in time. So I don't, I don't know. There's a book I read recently that actually gave the date for it. Is that Emma Dabry's book? Yeah, yeah that is. It yeah. Is absolutely. Yeah. Is book. yeah. Like whiteness was invented at a certain point in time. Which obviously is quite, yeah, if I remember reading that as a white person, you know, feeling quite mind-blown by that because you think of this concept of like race or, yes. you know, the fact that we group yeah, all these people together, you know, and we only have been doing that for like only a few centuries. But um, I suppose we're doing, that was a long digression, but I prefer to only use the term trans about people that would have called themselves that after the term was invented. However, what we do know is that there are people who have led cross-gender lives, people who have lived in a social role that is different from the one that's assigned to them at birth. And they've existed at all periods, you know, whether it was like 17th century London, Yorkshire in the in the fourth century CE. I talk about a, a transvestite prostitute who's a, who was arrested in London in 1394. You know, these people existed throughout human history. And yeah, there's this big myth that because of the media and because there's more visibility, there's a contagion now and everyone's like, you know, being convinced that they're transgender. But like, as that 90-year-old trans woman said, she knew when she, like she knew then, like when she was three or four. I mean, not all trans people do know that young. I mean, like, I didn't know that young. It was later for me. But yeah, like, yeah, the reality is those people have always been here. Um, it's just the fact that, like, if no one's giving you any signposting to what this might be going on with you or all you receive every time you ever try and talk about it is, like, you'll be arrested or you'll be electroshocked or, you know, you're going to just learn to keep quiet. Is this book in any way, shape or form designed to be a bridge between yourself, the trans community, and people who... I guess it couldn't be a bridge between people who just deny your existence, right? But if it is a bridge, who is it a bridge to? Well, when you get, whenever you get like a really polarised issue like this, 
it's easy to forget that often the loudest voices are at the polar ends. So obviously you have trans people who are like feeling misunderstood, maligned, who are often in pain, who are often like, you know, experiencing really difficult lives, who are angry, quite rightly so. And then, yeah, the other, you get these people who are fanatically obsessed with this issue to a point where I'm often like, you know, why do you care so much? We're such such a small minority. I think about like, we're about the same size as like gypsy Roma traveler communities and not being from, like, I can't imagine caring so much about a, community, a minority I don't belong to, frankly, because I get alive. But yeah, what we forget is that when there's anything like that, the loudest are at both ends, but the vast majority of people sit somewhere in the middle where they're either silent because they just don't, they get put off by the anger or they feel they don't know enough or they just don't care. And I hope to catch some of the people who just don't care who will read one book on trans because they've only got time for that. And I hope it will be mine. And so, yeah, you you want those middle people. I'm never going to convince someone that's like, absolutely, there is no such thing. You born a man, you die a man. You know, I'm, I'm never going to convince that person, but there's they're the minority. I don't actually, if you're writing persuasively, you don't need to convince them. You need to convince the silent majority, I think. Does the denial of your existence by some people... Does it hurt more that it comes from certain sections of the feminist world than it does from middle-aged men? Um, probably did at the start. I mean, I would say it probably doesn't hurt at all now because I'm I'm quite comfortable with, again, this is probably a product of the relatively privileged life I lead. I can't, I can't, I have to, I would have to own up to that. Yeah. But I don't need... I don't, yeah, I don't need the validation of like everyone, everyone's internal thoughts to validate who I am or whatever. And I would obviously be outraged if I was in a like professional situation. You know, if you suddenly were sort of misgendering me now, obviously I would be like, right, we're (laughs) we're ending the podcast because it's like a level of professional respect, obviously like, so I'm not saying it, it wouldn't completely, but complete strangers I don't think I care as much as I once did. I think we, like, do have to say it. Like, I mean, I'm all, I always do agree that the worst transphobic violence often is from men, you know, partners of trans people or just or just strangers. So, like, I'm, I'm always say that. I'm, you know, I'm never saying, f- you know, anti-trans feminists are the most violent. You know, they're not. But there is a real, you know, it's hard that this is supposed to be a movement that's about liberating people, feminism and resisting oppression resisting gender roles and then like you know these people will turn around and actually say some of the nastiest things possible that is unpleasant and it is unpleasant that in britain i feel like if i if there's anything feminist whether it's an event or a book group or whatever i have to do my homework before i feel like to check what their stance is on trans women because i can't just assume that that's a welcome space for me amongst younger feminists you know like i think you know students yeah, I think I think it's becoming much more normalised. Like, I don't really know any anti-trans feminists who are like in their twenties, like mo- most twenty-year-old, uh, even younger, like teenage girls, whatever, who get who are involved in feminism and things like Jamila Jamil's community I Way, and you know all this stuff that this new media that gets girls into feminism. I think all of it's quite trans-inclusive, so that's fortunate. But yeah, so I I think it's a shame that trans women experience, in particular, I mean all trans people, but trans women seem to be the problem considering that a lot of the issues that we're facing are the same as other women someone's had an abusive partner or i don't know yes that's someone 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 got groped on a bus you know these things don't they don't play out any differently from my cisgender friends to my trans friends and so it's like well obviously why is this division here because actually it's all the same problems 
It's interesting that you're in your teenage bedroom because your third object is very much related to it. And it's a desk. Yes. Is it still there? It is. I'm, I'm, you're perched upon it. Yeah, the computer from which I am recording this is on the desk. Um, yeah, this well, I picked it because obviously I wrote the book on it. And I think I, I thought it was, um, yeah, I mean, I kind of alluded to it with the flowers thing, right? So I had the odd experience when people ask about the process of writing a book, and I've been asked a lot about that in recent weeks, I don't know how to write a book outside of a full national lockdown in a pandemic because I've never had that experience. Um, so this desk was put in my room when I was a teenager. It used to be where I worked for my A-levels and my, revised my GCSEs. You know, it was, it was always this kind of central thing to, yeah, my work, even from a, from a teenage thing. And what was odd was that a lot of personal changes happened in my life Six weeks before the lockdown started last March, I ended a relationship that was like a very significant one where we were due to be moving in together. And then obviously in the middle of kind of like, you know, everyone break up blues, suddenly it's like, well, actually you can't see any friends, you can't leave your house, which was very surreal at the time. And I had chosen luckily just before that to move back in temporarily whilst I was going to look for somewhere in London on my own. But yeah, like it became this comforting thing that like every day, having gone from leading this quite adult life in London, I was back in the teenage bedroom, not seeing everyone, just going back to the thing and, and write, I just write like 2000 words of the book every day for like, and it became like a real life raft for my mental health at that time, because I was experiencing a big personal change in my life. We were all struggling with lockdown. Everyone had a mental health impact at times. You couldn't see a lot of your friends all the plans that I'd had for 2020 had changed. And so really all I had was this book. Um, and this book was kind of my one constant. You know, it was a reason to get up and and work and do something every day. And 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 so, yeah, I mean, it, it fulfilled much more than like a book should really. And yeah, the desk obviously is symbolic of that, is that that's where I wrote it. And it will be interesting to see if I ever write a book again, um, which I'm not committing to, whether or not I'll be able to do it or if I'll end up being like, mum, can I come back and write it at that desk? That's the only place I know how to do this. <laughs> Let's take an opportunity now, Sean, to listen to an extract from the transgender issue. Mr Upton has recently made a significant change in his life and will be transitioning to live as a woman. After the Christmas break, she will return to work as Miss Meadows. This brief announcement in the parents' newsletter of St Mary Magdalene School in Accrington, Lancashire, was easy to miss. It was buried casually amid a number of other staff changes being announced at the start of the 2012 Christmas break. A year one teacher was increasing her hours to full time, another was reducing them, one teacher was leaving the school for a new position in Spain, one was becoming a woman. The head teacher, Karen Hardman, later admitted that she thought Miss Meadows' transition was bound to arouse interest in the school community. Perhaps the announcement was placed among a list of more routine staff changes in the hope of minimising any undue reaction or to avoid sensationalising the transition of a member of staff. If this was the case, it was a vain hope. Within a few days of the school newsletter's publication, the name Lucy Meadows the name by which she wished to be called following her transition was splashed across the national press alongside her previous male name. Soon afterwards, journalists were encamped around her home. Within three months, Lucy Meadows, aged 32, was found dead under the stairs at her home. She had taken her own life. 
That was a reading from the audiobook edition of The Transgender Issue, written and read by my guest, Sean Fay. A link to the audiobook can be found in today's programme notes. And before we get back to the questions, please don't forget to follow The Penguin Podcast. Let us know what you think, give it a rating, and most importantly, share it with your friends. Their lives are not as good as yours because they don't have it in their life. And so back to the objects. Sean, and this time it's an album from a global superstar. And I think we can safely say perhaps the 21st century Judy Garland. <laughs> yes, I know. And yet another very, very gay boy choice. And I can say that I'm talking about my teenage self. Uh, it was the Chromatica album by Lady Gaga. And I'm sure if any LGBTQ people are listening, they'll be like, oh yeah, I know that. And if <laughs> straight people will be like, what? And the reason I picked it, yeah, again, is she is like, I mean, she was in A Star Is Born, which also Judy Garland was, you know, she is very much vying for that, another gay, gay icon. And of course, like Lady Gaga became like very famous around a time when I was at university and I, even though I hadn't come out as trans yet, there wasn't a word for it, but I was quite obviously gender non-conforming and gender fluid. I used to draw, I mean, I used to go to tutorials and like full makeup and like, you know, there was something when you look back, if, if visibility had been as good in 2006, 2007 as it is now, I would have probably clicked, oh, <laughs> the word for this is trans. But yeah, like, and I think like at that time, this kind of very yeah, very high camp, very kind of like constantly referencing of like cinematic history, this kind of like postmodern type pop videos. It was just seemed very exciting and fun. And obviously it's a bit silly and it's not like, you know, it's just fun to listen to. So I've always been quite a massive Lady Gaga fan. And then like, yeah, so so she obviously went off and did like A Star Is Born and had a kind of, and, and did a couple of albums that were a bit more mainstream and a little less something you might listen to in a queer club. And then like last year, obviously with lockdown, again, when I was writing this, that album came out because it was scheduled. She, did, she decided to release it even though she couldn't tour it. And it was really like that. And I think Dua Lipa were the only pop albums that came out last year because the music industry just stopped. And I think it was like a time, you know, I really missed going out to queer venues, to the to clubs. And what I loved about that album was it was like a real return to form of like this kind of just, yeah, like fun pop, the sort of stuff you would listen to. And a lot of my friends were listening to it too. And because we couldn't go to like those venues, and that's so important, I think, when you're a LGBTQ person is that those spaces where you get to hang out with people like you in safe spaces, you don't have to be like looking over your shoulder. You don't have to be thinking, is this going to attract the wrong kind of attention? And I'd kind of always taken it for granted. And then like when it had disappeared last year I really really missed it and I think what I loved is that this it sort of brought a touch of that kind of nightlife to like yeah just playing on playing on Alexa whilst I was writing so it really lifted my spirits at a time when I kind of needed that and it was probably a very help, big help to the book as well. Finally Sean we like to ask our guests about a recent book that they have loved so what would you recommend to our listeners immediately that they should add to their reading list? Mm. I mean, like I loved Detransition Baby. I know I'm pushing the trans thing, but it's um, by a friend, Tori Peters. She's an American novelist. She long listed for the Women's Prize for Literature here in the UK, and it was a Sunday Times bestseller. So people may have heard of it, but um, I really love it because it's a, it's a novel about a trans woman, a man who used to be a trans woman, but detransitions, and a cisgender woman, and whether or not they did they decide to raise a baby together, which sounds like a kind of quite complex plot. But what I love about it is that the characters, the trans women characters in it are complex. They're flawed. They're not like, you know, because sometimes when you 
when you have representation on television or whatever, it has to be like, oh, these characters have to be so saintly because we need to do the best. It's like, no, actually, a lot of trans women are really, we are really fucked up. I mean, we could not be. And, you know, we're not always the healthiest people. And like, you know, we can be really horrible to each other. <laughs> and, you know, all those dynamics exist in real life. And I'd never read anything that was honest about the kind of, you know, I'm not saying the char- I identified with the characters, like, oh, this is me. But there was enough in there where, like, I don't see or read characters that live a life that's remotely similar to mine ever. So that that was really good. But what surprised me, uh, and it's very, you know, it's very honest about sex and our dating lives, is um, what surprised me is that how many, yeah, non-trans people loved it and engaged with it. It gave me quite a lot of hope as a trans writer because, you know, people didn't need to have any insight into this world at all to identify with these characters or to enjoy the novel. And it's also just a really easy, light read. It's quite, it's quite funny. It's quite wry. So I would recommend that as an antidote to mine, which is very heavy. <laughs> what a recommendation. Amazing. Sounds fantastic. Uh, as has been hanging out with you. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been nice. It's nice to do like... I forgot that I picked both Lady Gaga and Judy Garland. I mean, that really is a lot. But there we go. (laughs) Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Sure, thank you. Thanks. Thanks.